Hello, and welcome to Speaking Refugee, the Vulner podcast. My name is Sham Jaff, and today is our last episode. I am so happy you joined us for this series. This podcast is part of the Vulner Project, a research project that aims to understand the vulnerabilities faced by migrants to enable decision makers to better identify situations of vulnerabilities and address them. In the past five episodes of this series, we looked at the topics home, family, food, gender, and health, and how they contribute to a person's vulnerability or resilience. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I recommend you do that first. Today, we are going to talk about another factor of vulnerability and resilience, capital, and why it is more than just about the money you have. Because, yes, I think we all know that money plays a huge role in this world. It can be used to buy goods or services from others, paying your rent, going to the supermarket, ordering some medicine in a pharmacy, or buying a computer for your job. It is important. But there are other types of capital. And the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu has given much thought to them. As in our previous episodes, you will meet Gabriel, a former refugee, now teacher in a settlement in Uganda. How I am now, it's because of education. Jamila, who left Afghanistan shortly before the Taliban took over and is now living in Belgium with her two kids. In Belgium, I have to restart my life from zero. And Fatima, a humanitarian worker in the Mina region. A lot of the perceptions that we have of refugees that, you know, all they need is uh, help. I think uh, what they actually need is more systematic help that also will allow them to work and to bring uh, a lot of benefit to the societies. So this is the last episode already. And... We wanted to talk about a topic that has been popping up again and again in the first five episodes. Remember Gabriel worrying about the education of his daughter? When I'm smiling, you may think that you have no problems, whatever. But when I think of my future plan with my family, I also become challenged. I think of putting my daughter in a good school. But when it comes to the income, my income cannot do it. Or when Fatima told us about the challenges a female refugee she took care of had to face in Lebanon. She mentioned to us, she said, you know, what hurts me the most is that when I go into a shop with the very little money that I have um, and I want to buy basic food for my children, including like anything, bread or anything, I'm already sad because I don't have enough. To buy food, have a home for your family, and pay for an education for your kids, you will need money. So let's talk about it. And to broaden the perspective a little, we will talk about capital in general. Money is certainly an important type of capital, but not the only one. As the famous French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu said, 
There are more kinds of capital than just money. Besides the economic capital, which is indeed the money you own or inherit, Bourdieu also defines cultural and social capital. So let's take a few minutes to have a brief look at Bourdieu's theory of capital. In general, capital can be described as anything a person or entity is able to spend or use when competing with others on any market. In the section of cultural and social capital, here is what Bourdieu wrote back in 1986 when he first published his theory. The cultural capital is the cultural knowledge that serves as a currency, that helps us navigate culture and alters our experiences and the opportunities available to us. Maybe you are into classical music, prefer dressing in a certain way, or have a lot of books. This is part of your personal cultural capital. And besides being a matter of taste, it is also an essential part of defining social classes. Sociologists, for example, have found severe class divides in the reading habits of people. The number of books at home are even counted as an indicator of a person's socioeconomic status. And are you more into rap or opera? Because in the West, this is another indicator of your social class. Cultural capital is strongly linked to education. In many countries over the world, upper-class kids go to different schools than lower-class kids, and they often get different opportunities to build cultural capital. For example, by learning a certain language, instrument, or technique. But they also tend to learn different behaviors, slangs, and dress differently, something called habitus, another of Bourdieu's famous concepts. Now let's look at social capital. Social capital is the sum of the resources, actual or virtual, that accrue to an individual or a group by virtue of possessing a durable network of more or less institutionalized relationships of mutual acquaintance and recognition. Social capital is mostly shaped by your social relations. Think of family, friends, and any connections or networks that help you thrive and will support you if needed. This is important because social and cultural capital, along with economic capital, contribute to the inequality we see in the world, according to Bourdieu's argument. They would make us sing our national anthem. We would feel like we are still in Burundi. So everyone would be having that courage of going to school because all teachers would always tell us you are the Burundi of tomorrow. So it was kind, motivating. You'd go to school with a goal to achieve. This is Gabriel, who lives in Uganda. As he told us in our previous episodes, he was a refugee himself. Fleeing from Burundi, where there was a war in the 1990s, he first came to Tanzania, where he lived for quite a long time, and finally, he arrived in Uganda with his mother and siblings. For him, education was the key to start a life of his own 
to be able to have his own family, pay for their daily needs and the education of his daughter. Generally, he believes that education is an essential part of empowering other refugees and helping them starting their own life too. That is also why he became a teacher himself. Thanks to the teachers he had as a child in Tanzania himself, he and his classmates were very motivated to learn in order to be able to shape their own future. We would not see ourselves like we're going to remain refugees for the entire life. Education. It really meant a lot to him. Because of what had happened in our country, the killing of people, displacement of people, so we would see like going to school will bring that change that any time we shall go back and regain what we've lost and even parents would encourage us like you never go back to our home country when you are not educated and to this day Gabriel strongly believes in the power of education. If I look at how I used to be and how I am now, it's because of education. If it wasn't education, I would not be working. That's life which is really not good. Because I look at the people I grew up with and they never took education as something important and how they are. But though I'm not all that well good, but at least I'm better than how I was sometimes back, like 10 years back. As a teacher today, Gabriel tries to share the experiences he had with his students, including the positive effects of education. Telling them how the language is going to help them, because sometimes when they're in the camp, they don't think that a language can become a challenge, not until when they go beyond the settlement. He tries as best he can to prepare his students for life outside of the settlement. And that also includes making it clear to them that they won't usually get very far with their mother tongue. When they go beyond the settlement, when they go to Kampala, when they go to those cities around in Uganda, and when they want to make like transactions and they find that a language is a barrier. Like most of them, sometimes when they go to Kampala, business people use Uganda and English. And when you don't know any of the two languages, it becomes a challenge. So I bring those scenarios to them. And those are the same scenarios that make them keep motivated. In other words... Gabriel is more a life teacher. He tries to share his experiences, his knowledge with other refugees in the camp. He shares his cultural capital, the things he learned himself. In the Volna report on Uganda, Sophie Nakoera also addressed the importance of education. She spoke to organizations like Windle International or War Child Canada, who offer educational programs to refugees and their children. And she highlighted how increasing the cultural capital of children here through education can also soothe 
the vulnerabilities of their mothers. In the interview, an aid officer with War Child Canada explained that there are early childhood development centers where people look after children between the ages of three to six years, some of whom are born to teenage mothers. This childcare allows their mothers to concentrate in school while their children are being looked after. So, again, and we have talked about this in our previous episodes, different aspects of vulnerability intersect with each other. Education really plays a central part for many refugees. And being recognized as an educated person, or not, it can make all the difference. Let's come back to Fatima. Fatima is the humanitarian aid worker from the MENA region, who we talked to in our previous episodes. She started working in humanitarian services in Syria around 2009. My dad was a humanitarian and he was kind of encouraging me to um, get engaged and do more, you know, like for the community. I'm Syrian and at the time uh, we didn't have war and we didn't have any urgent need to think of what is it to be a humanitarian. At the time, we were like, you know, we want to serve the community. We want to help, you know, people around us who are experiencing certain difficulties or challenges, whether, you know, like it is related to disabilities or any challenge, whatever we can help, we wanted to help. A lot of this work is building a social network for people who don't have the economic or cultural capital they need to start a new life in a foreign country. It's so rewarding in the sense that, you know, these few hours, it's not just like, you know, about what you are bringing to yourself. It is about what you are offering to others, you know, and the difference that you bring to their lives. It is kind of, you know, a social commitment. I know like it might look like a, a cliche, but I started that at a very early age and waking up in the morning, knowing that you're going to work. It's not your kind of, you know, part of like something mechanical you're just doing. It is like you're going because like someone out there needs you to go to work. Fatima has been working in this field for a long time. And over the years, she has seen a change in how refugees are treated. We used to be more compassionate. We used to be more welcoming to it. Nowadays, I, I, I think there is a stigma related to the word refugee. This stigma takes away from this human's identity. Fatima recalls the story of a woman who came from Syria. One of the stories I can think of a widow coming from Syria. She lost her husband in the conflict in Syria and she had to uh, flee to Lebanon uh, in 2015. She came to Lebanon with her uh, three children. One of them had um, a disability where um, he was uh, unable to see properly and uh, she was um, unable to being, you know, like not having the proper documentation. She was unable to rent a place. She didn't have access to work and uh, she could not register her children at uh, school. And given that they also live in a remote area and they don't have financial means to cover the transportation costs, which is increasing rapidly. Maybe you remember? We heard about that woman in episode one when we talked about the topic home. Not having a decent home, like this woman and her children, it makes them very vulnerable. 
She simply didn't have the money to rent a flat, and the settlement she ended up in, it was not safe. She was trying to have any feel of stability. Like she was trying to find a way out. Like you know, how can I make sure that my children have a decent life, an apartment, uh, or like rent at least a room or anywhere that would protect them. However, she was unable to do so. Um, and uh, there was a few, like, you know, uh, incidents when there was, like, a storm um, and snow and they had to actually flee out of the camp. In this case, having no home, no money, and having to care for two kids on her own, it is a cluster of vulnerability factors that amount to even more problems in her concrete case and in many other cases, too. She said... You know, what hurts me the most is that when I go into a shop with the very little money that I have and I want to buy, you know, basic food for my children, including like anything, bread or anything, I'm already sad because I don't have enough. However, walking in the mud, you know, coming out of the camp where we live, she's not bathed, you know, they don't have bathed land, you know. She said, I could not escape having mud on my feet. And then when I go into the shop, I get these unwelcoming looks or like, you know, people are bothered that, you know, I would bring mud into the uh, shop. They don't understand that I can't escape that. I can't have clean feet like other people do. I can't go inside and buy whatever I want and be welcomed. Not only inside a shop, in the Lebanese society in general, Syrian refugees are often not very welcome. And one essential part of this not feeling welcome, it is that nobody was really interested in the potential, the education that Syrian refugees came with. Fatima stresses this, quoting the woman she met. While organizations help us and they do their best, however... All I want is to actually work, and I have so much to offer. Like, I didn't come from Syria with nothing. I came with all my skills, my background, my education. But I feel that I am looked at as if I have nothing to offer, but, you know, as if I am just a refugee living in the camp. She had a high school degree, but that does not count. She only feels like a burden to the Lebanese society. In my perspective, that says a lot. A lot of the perceptions that we have uh, of uh, refugees, and here I'm talking about the general perception, um, that, you know, all they need is uh, help. I think what they actually need is more systematic help at the policy level, where they are provided with their rights, which will help them access their basic needs, and, you know, like, that also will allow them to work and to bring uh, a lot of benefit to the societies. Fatima still works a lot with refugees from Syria. Most of them have come to Lebanon. She observes the way they try to make the best out of their situation by using the social capital they have. For many Syrians, when they left Syria, they fled war, they fled inequality, they fled lack of opportunity, uh, fear. Coming to Lebanon, some were able to capitalize on the opportunities or identify possible opportunities, make friends that they called family. They were able to kind of access uh, certain work opportunities. The capital those refugees have is their social connection. 
a network in which they help each other to meet their needs, or as Bourdieu would call it, social capital. In Lebanon, the opportunities refugees have or do not have depend a lot on their legal status. We've talked about this a lot in the previous episodes, but let me stress it again, this time with a short quote from the Volner Report on Lebanon. The lack of legal documentation results in a precarious situation for refugees and has detrimental impacts on their mobility, access to documentation and services, most importantly of which are healthcare and education. The overall policies in Lebanon led to several categories of refugees, for example registered, recorded and unregistered. This impacts on the extent of access to protection for each of them. As Lebanon has seen many different crises in the last years, a hard financial crisis, the coronavirus pandemic, the explosion in the Beirut harbor, and the food crisis caused by the war in Ukraine and droughts or floods that were caused by climate change, the support for refugees in the country is basically provided by international organizations like the UNHCR, The Lebanese government struggles to provide the millions of refugees in the country with what they need. This is why, in Lebanon, poverty plays a bigger role when assessing the vulnerability status of refugees than in other countries. As the Volner report written by Shad Nadaif, Mahashoaib, and Maria Malouf states... One main determinant of refugees' vulnerability would be poverty and the economic situation. For many of our interviewees, the economic situation of the refugee is seen as an important indicator of vulnerability. There are many foreigners and refugees in Lebanon who are in a good economic situation and not vulnerable, and thus vulnerability is not linked to nationality. Or, in other words, after this many crises, many Lebanese residents themselves are highly vulnerable. And this leads to a special situation in Lebanon. Because, yes, there are many guidelines from international organizations about what criteria should lead to recognizing a person as vulnerable and who should benefit from humanitarian aid. But these criteria are often contested by the local actors in Lebanon who feel like they reflect donors' priorities, as Shadna Daif, Mahashaib, and Maria Malouf have found after interviewing different field workers. State officials, on their end, refuse can't criteria and define their own criteria. They think that, and I quote from the Volner Report, The categories are defined abroad and do not necessarily fit Lebanon's reality, where any person is very vulnerable. Among the Syrian refugees who are at risk the most are the men who were involved in the war. They are perceived as a security risk by the Lebanese security forces, who often target them. Those who are unemployed also face huge survival challenges. This shows that international humanitarian programs must also consider local realities and involve local actors if they are to efficiently address and reduce vulnerabilities. 
Economic capital plays a major role in Lebanon at the state level when it comes to the vulnerability of refugees, because constructing vulnerability criteria and targeting assistance in Lebanon is based on how much money there is, and most of the time, there is not enough. In Belgium, I have to restart my life from zero, the steps from zero. Learning language is the first thing that I have to. Then I want to have my driving lessons. It is the second goal. And the third goal, maybe after raising the kids and they will go to school or primary school, maybe I would search for a job. This is Jamila, a young mother who fled Afghanistan in 2021. She lives in Belgium now, with her son of two years and her baby daughter. Back in Afghanistan, she had a university degree, and she worked for an organization that campaigned for women's rights. We had a beauty parlor classes, tailoring classes, computer classes, and also um, signboard classes for women. Jamila misses going to work a lot. My job was my passion. When she still had her job in Afghanistan, she earned really well. Now, in Belgium, she is only a housewife and does not earn any money. It's not easy for her and it scratches her self-confidence. To find a job in Belgium, the first thing she would have to do is to learn French. But when? Her day is already really full. I'm busy with these two kids from the morning to evening, giving them food, feeding them, uh, changing nappies and taking them out and playing with Elias because more than everybody, she needs me this time. I have to play with him also. Remember what the officer for War Child Canada said in the Volna report on Uganda? They gave mothers a chance to education by looking after their little children. Otherwise, they would not be able to get the education they need. And this would be the cultural capital they need to start a new life. At the moment, with two little toddlers, there is no time and possibility to learn French for Jamila. <sighs> These are getting much harder. <laughs> Being as a single mom is, I think, the most ex difficult experience. Different. I wasn't expecting to be alone here in this situation. New area, new people, new language. <laughs> I have to learn language in this age. So I haven't expected. I wasn't thinking of this. In Jamila's case, missing her family, her social capital, it is the hardest for her. Remember when she told us about her family in the second episode? And the good thing, when I was with my family, my husband, so being a complete family and remembering everything from that is the most beautiful things in my life. As we have seen in the second episode, family, whether by blood or by choice, can be a source of resilience to everyone who faces any struggles in life. And having that social capital 
is one important way to deal with vulnerability for many refugees. Helping each other, having similar experiences, and having someone to talk to when feeling helpless or overwhelmed, those are some of the aspects family means to many, many people. The key element is togetherness, not being and not feeling alone. At least, in Belgium, there is no financial hardship. Refugees are able to live a decent life and meet their basic needs like a home or food and medical support. Capital is more than just money. Pierre Bourdieu already observed this. And that is why, even without a lot of money, many people are able to be a well-respected part of society because they have a social network or a family who have their backs, social capital. Fatima told us about Syrian refugees sticking together, to be strong together, although the status of Syrian refugees in Lebanon is really hard right now. Other people, like Gabriel, rely on their education, meaning on their cultural capital, to enable them to get a job and to be part of a new society by learning a new language. Social and cultural capital are both resilient strategies in times of economic hardship. But when they are missing, even if the economic needs are being met, like in Jamila's case, it is still very challenging. Humanitarian aid workers or social workers all over the world, like Fatima and many others, they try their best to make up for missing social capital. Teachers like Gabriel, who teaches a new language and informs about the rights all refugees have in Uganda, they try to support others in building their own cultural capital. But as we've seen in Lebanon, when the country itself struggles massively on the economic level, it affects the most vulnerable members of society first. Our little podcast series about the different aspects of vulnerability in the context of forced migration and asylum seeking is now coming to an end. We really hope you enjoyed listening to us and that we brought another note to the individual experiences and feelings that constitute the vulnerabilities of refugees and that are often overlooked and not so clear. We tried to break them down and make them personal, which would not have been possible without our free protagonists from Uganda, Lebanon, and Belgium. So, many, many thanks to Gabriel, Fatima, and Jamila. Thank you for bringing all your stories and experiences to this podcast. This would not have been possible without you. Speaking Refugee, the Volner podcast, is also based on the important fieldwork done by the Volner researchers themselves all over the world. Special thanks to Sylvie Sarolea, Francesca Raimondo, and Zoe Krien from the Belgium team, Shadna Daif, Maha Shoaib, and Maria Malouf from the Lebanese team, and Sophie Nakuera, author of the Volner Report on Uganda. 
And many thanks to Luc Leboeuf, head of the Volner Project, Susanne Hoeb and Andreas Edel, executive secretary and research scientist at Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research, Population Europe. This was the last episode of Speaking Refugee, the Volner podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to recommend it to others. And wherever you can, give it a positive review or a star. It can help others find it. Also, share this podcast with your friends and colleagues on social media or maybe in your newsletter. And for more information on the Volner Project, check out our show notes. The new Volner reports are in the making, and we are certain they will make a difference when it comes to speaking refugee. My name is Sham Jaff. Thank you for listening. The Volner Project is carried out by an international research consortium involving partners from nine research institutions located in six different countries. It is financed by the EU under the Horizon 2020 Work Programme. This episode was designed by House 1, Karina Schröder, Sham Jaff, Katharina Alexander and Katrin Rönnecke, based on the input from the Volner team. Susanne Hoeb, Luc Leboeuf, Zoe Green, Maria Malouf, and Sophie Nacoera. Editing and sound design, Karina Schröder. Script, Katrin Rönnecke. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>